We're going to be looking at the Bible together. As Dan's mentioned, uh, we are currently in the middle of our series going through Acts, and we are going to begin in Acts chapter 11 today. So we're in Acts chapter 11, the first 18 verses. Acts chapter 11 and verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheep being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it, and I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your households will be, household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Okay. The term deja vu describes the feeling of having experienced something already. It just feels very familiar somehow, even though we don't think we've been here. But we've been here before, right? In the vintage film from the last century, The Matrix, the leading characters are living in a virtual world. And in that virtual world, experiencing deja vu meant that something had been changed. The computers, the, the, the system that controlled the virtual matrix that they were living in had changed something, and because of that, something actually happened twice. Twice in a row. It was a glitch. Something had gone wrong. It hadn't been put back together quite right. So, if you've watched The Matrix, you will know that Neo sees a black cat go past a doorway, and then looks around again and sees the same black cat go past the doorway again. But it was just a glitch, just a glitch, just a, a vague memory, perhaps. That's what deja vu is all about. Well, you might be feeling a bit of deja vu here as we read. This is the same story that Grant 
was looking at last week and Dan was looking at the week before. Peter going to Cornelius' house. But in this case, there's no glitch. There's no, it's not just a, an odd memory that's not quite right. We really are very deliberately and rightly seeing the same story told all over again. There is purpose in Luke writing down this story again. There is purpose in God making sure that this story is presented for us again. As Dan mentioned two weeks ago, this is a wonderful, significant story. And we, as Gentiles, I'm assuming exclusively in this room, as Gentiles, can see the significance and wonder of this story. It's a hugely significant moment as first Peter and then the other believers in Jerusalem see the Gentiles are included. The Gentiles have received salvation and the Spirit just as we did. We're included. We are included. We see in the story Cornelius, this Roman military man and his whole household, hearing the message that brings salvation. Being filled with the Spirit just as Peter and the others had at the beginning. It's glorious, it's wonderful. What glorious truth that we see in the Word. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about the Gentiles that, that we were once separate, excluded, far off, foreigners, without hope, without God. And yet, as he continues in Ephesians 2 and verse 14, or in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. Yes. It's what we're seeing worked out, acted out here. It happens. Cornelius receives. His household receives. The Gentiles are being brought in. So it's no accident that Luke records the story again. We need to hear it. And I'll put to us this morning that this is an encouragement to us to trust God. We see what God is doing through Acts. We see God on the move. And we're to trust him, to believe him, to depend on him utterly, even as people have been testifying about this morning. In this story, we see that Peter's actions are contested and Cornelius' story is then repeated. But from that, we're going to see four ways that we can trust God. Or four things we can trust about God. You see in this story, God's on the move. And we see that people don't immediately understand. Peter stepped out in faith. He's obeyed God. He's hit, God said, don't be afraid to go with them. 
Here, see the vision, understand. He obeys. But now the, 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 the circumcised believers in Jerusalem have heard about it. He's facing challenge and criticism. We don't know exactly how it was brought. Perhaps it could have been quite aggressive. You went into the house of uncircumcised Gentiles. Peter, what on earth are you doing? Come on, explain yourself. We don't know. But we can immediately think, oh, criticism, this is ugly. This isn't good. But as an aside, even as we look at this today, questions are a good thing. Questions are an important thing. Peter, we don't understand. What were you doing? Aren't we supposed to not go into Gentiles' houses? What, what, what happened? What happened when you, were, when you were in Joppa that meant you went to Caesarea and ate with a Gentile? I don't understand it. You see, it can be tempting for us to bottle up questions. Perhaps about what's preached on a Sunday. Perhaps about what's going on or what happens within the church. Perhaps what's happening all around you. You can just bottle things up and think, well, I'll just go along with what's happening. I don't really understand but why they're doing this, but I'll just keep quiet. Go along with it, but underneath be quietly disgruntled. If you've been on the intro course recently, you'll know that we encourage... Actually, we want all of us to have a Berean attitude to come into the word. We read in, later on in Acts that the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, and when they heard Paul, they were eager to hear, but they studied the scriptures daily to check what Paul was saying was true. They were ready to, to question. They were ready to think, actually, is this lining up with scripture? Is this what scripture is saying? And I'd encourage you, even as we start on the outset here, be ready to ask questions. Be ready to, can you explain a bit further? I don't get that Yeah, I want to be on board, but I don't understand. It's okay to ask for more information or clarification, but Peter is facing criticism. We don't know their complete attitude, but thankfully we do see they are open to an answer. They're ready for God to explain to them, oh no, this is what God's doing. And they come to a great place together. Look what God has done. So we're going to look at four ways we can trust God. Firstly, and quite simply, we trust that God knows best. You see, as we start into this passage, it could be easy, in a very analytical way, to question Luke, and I dare say, very humbly, to question God here in the writing of Acts, why on earth is this whole story here again? Couldn't he just skip from verse 4 to verse 18? Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. And when they heard this, they had no further objections and they praised God. Or perhaps just a summary statement. For example, Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story about how the Gentiles received the Spirit and the Gospel just as they had at the beginning. And when they heard this, they had no further objections. Surely that would be more efficient. It seems on the surface odd to be recounting the whole story again just one chapter later that we've just walked through. My first point to us is simple. 
trust that God knows best. He knows best. Writing this story twice is for purpose. This story appearing in Acts chapter 10 and then in Acts chapter 11 is not by accident or or some kind of oversight on Luke's part or some kind of, oh, well, Luke was just getting carried away, wasn't he? No, God knows best. We could heed Peter's words from this very passage. He's talking about what God was doing with the Gentiles, but he says, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Who am I to question what God is doing? Who am I to question what God has put in his word? God knows best. His word is right. It's true as we come to this and maybe gently ponder, oh, it's interesting that the story comes twice in a row. But it's equally true when we meet things that are harder to grapple with in the word. His word is true. His word is perfect. His word is inerrant. His word is authoritative. I call us to remember Grant's point from last week. Let's believe in the authority of this. And as Grant said, how do we respond when the Bible says things that make us squirm? It's a great phrase. Do we look to sweep away what it says? Look to overlook it? I mean, it can't mean that. I mean, we know better now. We understand much better now, don't we? Or do we wrestle with it? Do we struggle with it and submit to it? Because God knows best. And what God says is true. So my first point to us is trust that God knows best and that his perfect word is perfect. It is the perfect, inerrant, authoritative, life-giving word of God. The perfect God of the universe who knows us better than we know ourselves. Trust him. He knows best. Secondly, as we read the story, we see that we can trust his power. As we see this story again, look what God has done. As we look through the story, as Peter recounts it to those who are challenging him, look what God did, how God spoke to Cornelius through a vision of an angel and spoke to Peter through a dream, a vision on the rooftop. Three times he he showed him this vision. How God in doing this orchestrates for Peter to have just heard this when the men arrive from Cornelius. Speaking to him, orchestrating and and preparing Peter to go with them. Preparing Peter to actually not just go with them, but then to go, I'm going in, I'm going to be with these people. I'm going to be with the Gentiles. Look what God is doing. And how as Peter begins to speak, God comes in power by his spirit on these Gentiles while Peter was still speaking. We can trust in the power of God. Do we believe in the power of God, that God is at work amongst us and in us and in the world around us? We can trust that God has power to speak to us, to speak through his words, to speak through dreams and visions, through prophecy, through our brothers and sisters and in our day-to-day lives. 
We can trust him to speak to us, to give us wisdom, as Bless and so wonderfully shared. Give us wisdom in the moment. What am I going to do here in this meeting? How is it going to work out? How is it going to pan out? Oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. You speak. You guide. And trust God that he has power to provide and to sustain, to protect and to uphold us. In our every moment. Sustaining and providing for our needs. And we can trust that he has power to break in in the moment, even in the midst of a sermon. The Holy Spirit comes. And not just on a Sunday in a gathered community, but God has the power to break in by his spirit. As Steve so wonderfully testified, sat in a van with a mate and he prays. And God brings healing. Do we trust that God has that power? Are we expectant? Are we expectant that God works in power amongst us? There's been stuff on the news over the last week about what's happening in Asbury in Kentucky, in America. About God meeting with people on a college campus. And the wonderful sense of God speaking to them and them coming in repentance, coming in prayer, coming, meditating on the word of God, worshipping. They were coming for, a, for a, a campus chapel meeting and it came to the end of the meeting and it just didn't end. Because God interrupted. God said, actually, I've got more to do with you. Peter recounts for us, this is how it happened. And we're drawn in for a second time in quick succession to see, look, this is what God did by his spirit. This is what God is doing. This is what God is about. He moves in power. We trust that he knows best. His word is true. We trust that he is moving in power. He moved in power in, in, in seeing this Situation change, and he's still at work in power today. And thirdly, as we read this, hearing this story again, we're led to trust the message. Peter draws our attention, he draws those believers' attention to this. He will bring you a message, this is verse 14, he will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. God spoke to Cornelius through the angel in a dream. Send for Simon. Send for Simon, who is called Peter, who's at the house of Simon the Tanner, and he will bring a message by which you will be saved. As we read this again, we see how salvation comes to a Gentile household. Cornelius, who's gathered all his relatives and his close friends. This is the plan of God. It's a message of salvation. As we read earlier, this is God's plan that Jew and Gentile will come together saved by Jesus Christ. The dividing wall of hostility broken down and now all at peace with God by the same message, by the same Jesus. 
In fact, that's the conclusion of the believers at the end of this passage. When they heard this, they had no further objections. They praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. We're called to trust this message. There is a message, one message, the message of Jesus Christ. When Peter and John were before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, what does Peter tell us? What does Peter tell them? Acts chapter 4 and verse 11, Peter says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There is a message of salvation. There's only one message of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father is through me. But you see, the world around us will push such a different message. In our postmodern, tolerant society, we can't say one way is right. There's, there's a whole multitude of ways to live a fulfilled and satisfied life. There's a whole multitude of ways to be happy and to be, to be fulfilled and to be who you truly are. The message can be you've just got to be true to yourself or to live out your truth. And as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, you go for it. In one sense, any faith, any activity, any way you want to identify or define yourself. Only you know best what is best for you. But it's nonsense. It's so wrong. It's not true. Actually, it's so damaging and dangerous. But this is the culture that we live in. And the culture will tell you... No, as long as it makes you happy. You need to find what makes you happy. The way, that's the way you're going to find for because no one knows you as well as you know you. Well, let me tell you, the God of the universe knows you better than you, know, you can ever know yourself. And he tells us this is the one way. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, came to this world. He was born as a baby. He lived a perfect life in order to go and die on a Roman cross. So that we, not lovely, wonderful people, no, rebellious, sinful people, could come to him, could come and submit to him and repent and find salvation. To find forgiveness, there's only one way, it's Jesus on a cross. To come to him to lay down your sin, to pick up your cross and follow him. See, the world will say, whatever you feel, you know best. God calls us to Jesus. Says, I laid down my life for you. I am the way, the truth and the life. Come to me, pick up your cross and follow me. And I'll offer you real hope. See, the world's message sounds lovely. It sounds good, in a way. Find a way that makes you happy. 
You can do that. You know yourself. You can work it out. Whatever it looks like for you, that's okay. It sounds loving. It sounds hopeful. But in the end, there's no hope in it. There's no hope in it. Hope is only found in Jesus. But the world won't like it. But we can trust this message. Over the last days and weeks, it's been sad hearing the events of the Church of England Synod. So they came to the decision and agreed to bless same-sex marriages. An intriguing fudge of no, what the Bible says about marriage we're still holding to, and yet at the same time, we're going to bless what the Bible doesn't say. It's sad. And it's painful. And it must be very painful for lots of folk within the Anglican community. But this is the effect of the culture pushing in, compromising truth, in an effort to be loving. I saw different clips of what was going on in their general synod meetings. I don't, sorry for anyone who knows better what those meetings, at the synod, I suppose that's the right way of putting it. A guy I think called Ben John, was questioning, was asking questions, but he made this one statement. Why make ourselves like the world when we have the one thing the world needs, the gospel? You see, all compromise, all, all of it is kind of, well, we need to be more loving, we need to do this, we need to, whatever it may be, this seems the more loving path, and yet the message of truth. The message of Jesus Christ is the love that the world needs. Not fluffy, fudgy inclusivity, but the powerful message of the cross that is for everyone and brings transformation. The truth that we are all broken, rebellious sinners, but there is an answer, and his name is Jesus Christ who laid down his life to pay the price for your sin so that you can be forgiven and you can know God and you can know what true life really is in following him. Trust his message. Trust what the word says. And fourthly and in closing, trust him in all circumstances. Trust him when backlash and persecution come. We see at the beginning of this passage, Peter is facing criticism. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter faces criticism. Yet actually I think we see Peter's genuine trust in God as he responds. It'd be very tempting to reply defensively. No, 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 I didn't. No, it wasn't my fault. Um, 
how dare you challenge me? You don't understand anything about the circumstances of what was going on. You weren't there. But Peter doesn't go there. He tells them what happened. He lets the story speak. This is what happened. This is what God has done. This is the whole story. Look, look, you see, even as I tell you, I had the same objections that you have. Surely not God. Surely not Lord, but God made it clear. I could see what God was doing. You see what God was doing in this. God did this. And they're satisfied and they can rejoice, in, rejoice together. But as we hear God, as we obey him, as we hold fast to the truth of the word and we hold out the message of truth, we, like Peter, will face challenge. And you see, it could come as a surprise. It could really have come as a surprise to Peter. We see Peter stepping out in faith, obeying God. He sees people saved. He sees this, mis this mission, if you like, is a massive success. Look what God's done. It's amazing. People are being saved and added. This is wonderful. And bam. What are you doing, Peter? It could take us by surprise. How can criticism and... and, and and questions come now. Everything's gone well. It's all good. It's, it's amazing. And yet that's when it comes. Often. See, here the questions and the criticism come from other believers. And that could be the case. Again, I could refer back to what's happening in Asbury in Kentucky. And there's been all sorts of different responses from around the world. There's a very good Pod of the Gaps discussion, which I've listened to some of, with Aaron and his friend Andy. Talking about what's going on. Talking about, actually, what, what does this mean? What does this look like, biblically? What's this all about? Some people are really excited. Wow, this is, for revival's breaking out and it's going everywhere. And, and this is, maybe getting more carried away than that. But others can come with really dismissive backlash. This is nonsense. What's going on? Bruh. This isn't biblical. What, what, what are you doing? Criticism can come. It can come from inside or it can come from outside. Because the reality is that this message, this truth, this word offends. The message of the cross is offensive. You know, none of us really like being called sinners. And Jesus calls us to his way. Not any way we feel like, but his way. So, so much of what is in here will offend and will press against what people believe, and particularly in our modern world. No, not particularly in our modern world. This has always been true. But there are specific, particular challenges for us at this particular time, which people have faced their own particular challenges at different times. We live in a nation that was once very Christian and would now probably best be described as post-Christian and increasingly secular. What the Bible says about so many things, how we're supposed to live, is becoming more and more offensive in the world around us. 
So as we step out, as we hold fast to what the Bible says, as we hold out what is the true hope for the world, we can expect to face backlash and persecution. Because so much of what it says, the world opposes. What the Bible says on sexuality or on gender, on marriage, on the fact that we are created male and female, that marriage is between one man and one woman, that the proper place for sex in this world is within the marriage of a man and a woman. We see that all playing out in the, the events in the Church of England. The pressure of the culture to compromise, to say, no, actually, no, well, this, this as well, and that as well, but that, that's okay too. What the Bible says about the sanctity of life, even for the unborn. That we're made male and female, and we're different. Even our decision recently to appoint three more male elders. Well, the world would question, why are they only men? Why is it only men who are up here preaching? Is it sexism? Is it tradition? Is it some other just kind of, well, we just felt like it was a good idea? No, it's because we believe what this says and this is what we believe it says. So as we hold out the message of truth, praise God, some people will respond. Praise God, people will come and know the same freedom and hope and truth that we find in Jesus. But others will not like it. Others will not like it at all. And I know that people will find themselves in situations, even now they find themselves, even this blessed was testifying about just living out his work life. Actually, what am I going to do here? How do I do this? Do I compromise? Do I, I can't compromise. What am I going to have to do? Am I going to have to make a stand here? Praise God, God made a way. That situation could have worked out so very differently. I know for others in workplaces, just holding to the truth is hard. But ultimately, we can trust God as we hold on to this truth and we hold on to this message. I thank God that he included this story again. That we see Peter responding to his critics and seeing, no, look, this is what God has done and we can trust him. We see his faith step contested, then Cornelius' story repeated, and in that, we can know that God can be trusted. We can trust that he knows best. We can trust that he is at work powerfully day by day, speaking to us, sustaining us, and let's be expectant that he can break in powerfully as well. And he does. Let us trust that this message, this gospel is true and is actually exactly what the world needs. Trusting that as we obey him, we can trust him even as backlash and persecution may come.